You are tuned to the Nahum Siegel Network on jmandtheam.org and nahumsiegel.com. Stay tuned for JM Sunday with Matis Weingast.
J.M. Sunday right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Matas Weingast. Today is the 14th day in the month of August 2016 and uh, the 10th day in the month of Av 5776. We uh, commemorate today as Tisha B'Av. We observe Tisha B'Av in terms of the the thoughts and, and the restrictions of the day. Tisha B'Av was yesterday, of course, uh, commemorating the many events in Jewish history, especially the destruction of the two temples in Jerusalem. Today is considered a uh, a sad day. Uh, but again, it is the 10th of Av today on the calendar because uh, when Tisha B'Av falls out on a Saturday on Shabbos, we do not... We do not uh, have any signs of mourning. We do not fast. The only time we fast on Shabbos is when Yom Kippur comes out on Shabbos. But otherwise, uh, we do not fast on Shabbos. And today, we observe the restrictions of Tisha B'Av. We are here live with you as uh, we progress throughout the day. For those around the world, whatever time it is, hope your fast is going well if you are able to fast today. The uh, the temperature in this part of the world, North New Jersey, is quite hot. It's 81 already. It's going up to a high of 96, and then going down to uh, 76 tonight. There is a heat advisory until 10 p.m. this evening. And... Uh, you have to be really careful out there. In Jerusalem, it's 85 right now, and uh, 69 degrees is the expected low tonight. Sunny throughout the rest of the day. There will be inspirational programming all day long here on the stream on the Nachum Siegel Network. We will be presenting to you in just a few minutes uh, two of Rabbi Beryl Wine's timeless lectures the first one, the land of Israel has a Jewish value, and the second one will be about the Six-Day War and the uh, and the reunification of Yerushalayim. Those are our presentations here on JM Sunday, and uh, then beginning at 9.15, there will be the uh, Tisha B'Av OU live webcast featuring Rabbi Stephen Weil, and uh, that will continue throughout the day until 2.30. And uh, that will be the annual keynote webcast taking place from the Boca Raton Synagogue in uh, Boca Raton, Florida.
And then to uh, to take us to the end of Tisha B'Av, from 6.30 to 8.30, Project Inspire will have an end of Tisha B'Av webcast. Join Charlie Harari and Project Inspire staff. Members close out the fast with a program entitled Guaranteed Success and Personal Growth. So that's today at 6.30. In this area, North New Jersey, again, the fast ends at 8.37 p.m., uh, about 13 and a half hours from now. We're going to go right to uh, Rabbi Wine and the uh, and one of his lectures, The Land of Israel as a Jewish Value. Appreciate you joining us this morning here on JM Sunday. Hope your fast is going to go well throughout the day. Here's Rabbi Beryl Wine. Tonight's uh, topic... Uh, deals with Eretz Israel as a value. Now, and I'm talking as a uh, political statement or as an idea of uh, Jewish nationalism, but as a religious value, because this entire series deals with values and the value of Eretz Israel as uh, an idea. Uh, is one of the most supreme values in all of Torah and all of the Jewish people. I read an article uh, before Yom Yerushalayim written by the chief rabbi of Haifa, Rav Shor Yashuv Cohen, uh, who uh, the thrust of the article uh, was a remembrance of his experiences in Yerushalayim. He was captured in the 1948 war. He spent nine months in the Jordanian prison camp, lost part of his leg. Uh, and he writes about his experiences uh, regarding Yerushalayim over the past 57 years. But one of the things that he pointed out is, uh, and he said it very clearly, he said that Medinat Yisrael, the state of Israel, is meant to be a conduit is meant to be a means to achieve Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. And in other words, that the state and our nationalism and everything that we have accomplished, that's not the end, that's only the means. And the means, uh, he quotes naturally from his father, the Nazir, and uh, from Rav Kook, uh, that the physical rebuilding of the Jewish people is a necessary prerequisite for the spiritual rebuilding of the Jewish people. But it is not the end. The end is that spiritual rebuilding. And as he calls it, it's the rebuilding of Eretz Israel and not just of Medinas Israel. So we speak about Eretz Israel here as a value, as one of the ideas uh, that has been constant throughout Jewish history. And it's been constant, it's interesting whether the Jewish people were here in the land of Israel or whether they were in the diaspora, in the exile. Because uh, we see in the Nevi'im, uh, the Nevi'im always speak about how does Eretz Yisrael react uh, to the behavior of the people who live there. As though Eretz Yisrael is a living thing, it's not a passive piece of land but it's a living organism. And this living organism reacts to what happens 
on it, around it, through it, and that that's the value, uh, that's the idea of what Eretz Yisrael represents. Now, the Jewish people spent most of their history outside the land of Israel. Uh, we're a people that are uh, 33, over 3,300 years old from Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and most of the time we have not been here. And whenever we have been here, uh, it has not been sweetness and light. There were periods, good periods, the period of David HaMelech, the period of Shlomo HaMelech, 80 years. Then it started to fall apart. Uh, in the time of uh, the second temple, the period of the Hashmanoim, so the first hundred years uh, was a good time, and then it fell apart. And it's been a difficult, difficult situation always regarding living in the land of Israel. And the reason for that is because we are trying to translate a spiritual value into an everyday life, into a state that has to function, into all of the problems of everyday living, it's much easier to deal with it as an imaginary thing, because then you never have any disappointments, and you don't have to worry about it, and you don't have to collect taxes, and you don't have the, the whole problem. But how do we make it work practically? Uh, that is a major challenge. And that challenge has faced the Jewish people every time they've been here in the land of Israel. So we find that uh, during the time of Yoshua and the Shoftim, so during the time of Yoshua, the Jewish people still were afraid of Yoshua because they still were afraid of Moshe. Moshe had such a lasting influence upon them that as long as Yoshua was here, they still thought that Moshe was here. But when Yoshua died, so then Vayibi Shvota Shoftim, we read now in the Megillah of Ruth. Shvota uh, Shoftim Rashi says the judges were judged. The Jewish people said, in effect, Miata, who are you to tell me to do anything? Everybody did whatever they wanted to. It was the ultimate pluralistic society. Do whatever you want. So then it's chaos falls apart. So then God has to remind them that they're Jews, right? So he sends the Plishtim, he sends the Amalekim, he sends the Kananim. All sorts of problems. And it takes time until David HaMelech comes on the scene uh, that the situation somehow becomes ameliorated. Now it becomes livable. And uh, during the last years of David, the last 20 years of David, and the first 25, 30 years of Shlomo HaMelech, so then it is finally what Eretz Yisrael is supposed to be. And they build the temple, and everything is wonderful. But people, especially the Jewish people, cannot stand prosperity. They cannot stand that everything should be wonderful, so they have to make it not so wonderful. And uh, Shlomo uh, wanders away, and then there's a rebellion, and Yerovim ben Nevot, and then they split into two kingdoms, and then they become idolaters and pagans, and that's the story. So because of that, Eretz is the most sensitive topic to discuss. And I hesitated to put it down on the sheet as one of the values to discuss, 
because I'm well aware that whatever one says uh, can unfortunately be subject to misinterpretation and also because it's so sensitive because we're living here and we're part of it and therefore we feel it perhaps differently than in the theory of Eretz Yisrael. The Gemara says, Gimel matonos nosan HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yisrael. God gave us three gifts. Below nosnon elabi Yisurim. And all three come with great pain. The three gifts are Torah. If you want to be a Talmud Chacham, if you want to study Torah, then it's sacrifice, it's Yisurim. It's uh, giving up hours and time. If you really want to be a great Talmud Chacham, so then it requires an enormous amount of concentration, willpower. It's Yisurim. It's not easy. Anyone who has ever opened the Daf Gemara and looked at it, the page itself is sufficient to dissuade you from going further. That three different fonts on the page, it's, uh, it's written in a language that uh, very difficult for us. We don't speak Aramaic anymore. And then you have Rashi on one side and Tosas on the other side, and then you have uh, the Rosh on the back, and nobody agrees on anything with it. It's Biyasurin. If you want to accomplish something, then you have to pay for it. The second thing the Gemara says is Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael comes Biyasurin. It's a matona. So look at the language of the Talmud. The language of the Talmud is that it's a gift, meaning we're not entitled. The language of matona is always that you're not entitled, it's a gift. There are certain things in life that we think we're entitled to. But there, the Talmud, when it says matona, so you're not entitled to be a Talmud Chochem, you have to earn it. You're not entitled there to Israel, you have to earn it. How do you earn it? Be Yisurin, right? And we can all testify what that means. The Jewish people for over the past hundred years here in Eretz Yisrael, every day is Yisurim. Every day is problems. Every day is blood. Every day is all of the difficulties that we're so well aware of. And the greatest Yisurim is that you don't see any way out of it. That's, you know, as long as you see a way out of it, then people, uh, people uh, almost are happy to absorb the Yisurim. But Yisurim on end with no way out, so that already is a different level of pain. And the third gift that Gemara says is Olam eternity, immortality. So you only gain that also through sacrifice. You only gain that also through willing to undergo sacrifice and pain. So because of that, we have this great concept that Eretz Yisrael has to be earned. Now you have another concept that God promised it to us. He told us from the beginning, he told Avram Avinu, I'm giving you this land, it's going to be yours. He told it to Yitzchak, he told it to Yaakov, he's told it to us from the beginning of time. This is your land, I'm giving it to you. The only thing is that when it comes uh, to the bottom line, uh, it's not our land. Avram Avinu wants uh, to bury his wife, Zora. So he has to buy the Mara Samach from the Bnei Ches, from Ephron, 
for, for an enormous amount of money. The Rashi there quotes the Medrash that says Avram, the, the greatness of Avram was that he didn't say to God, but you promised me, you said it's my land. What do you mean i got to pay him 400 shekel over La Socher, the best mint coins? You promised it to me. And Yitzchak digs wells all over the country and all the wells the Philistines uh, take over. They stop them up. They throw them out. And the Yitzchak does not say, but you promised me that the land is mine. And Yaakov Avinu, when he comes back from Lovon, so he has to buy the land by Shechem. And he doesn't say again, you know, God, you promised me. You told me it would be mine. So that's part of the definition of Yisurin. Yisurin is when you have to buy and sacrifice for what is yours. What belongs to you already. You have to start all over again. Which is in essence what happened to the Jewish people over the last hundred years. Whether it be through... uh, the Karen Kayemet, or through private funds, or whatever, or purchase, you, you have to buy it all over again. Because of the fact that that's Eretz Yisrael, and Niknis be Yisurin. So we have to be prepared for that. We have to realize that on one hand, it's ours, it was promised to us by God, and God's promises are valid. God's contract has never defaulted. And on the other hand, uh, we have to earn it. We have to buy it. We have to fight for it. We have to bleed for it. It's not ours. And that balance, uh, that contradiction almost, uh, lies at the heart of the Yisurian of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Talmud has... Very, the Talmud is very, very pro Eretz Israel. Let's put it that way. And the Talmud uh, has almost a hidden anger, and this is the Babylonian Talmud, let alone the Yerushalmi, the uh, Talmud that was written in Eretz Israel. The Talmud has almost a hidden anger at people that don't come to Eretz Israel when they have an opportunity to do so, when the Jewish world had an opportunity to do so. The Gemara says, for instance, by Ezra, that at the time of Ezra, most of the Jews stayed in Bavel. They didn't come back. And the Talmud says, Ilu olu kachoma, if they would have come up in waves, it would have, if they would have come home, then the second temple would have had all of the spiritual glory and miracles that the first temple had. But because the Jews didn't want it, so God said, okay, so you don't want it, I, I don't want it either. It didn't come back. And throughout the history of the Second Temple, there were tremendous uh, Jewish communities all over the Mediterranean basin, in Rome, in Greece, in Bovell, in, uh, uh, in Egypt, in Alexandria. And the rabbis always held that against them. And therefore the rabbi said, for instance, Hashem, the Lord has made me dwell in darkness, Zu Talmudo Shalbovel. That's the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud, which the Gemara speaks about itself, is darkness because it was composed in Bovel. 
And uh, Bovel uh, had a very, very high spiritual state, great Talmidei Chachomim, great yeshivas, a great Jewish community. So let me just quote to you a few Gemaras. Because the Gemara says that the land itself has a holiness to it. The land itself has a holiness to it. It's called Eretz HaKodesh, the holy land. So you don't hear it so much amongst Jews, but in the non-Jewish world they still call it the holy land. Eretz HaKodesh, the land itself has holiness, independent of who is there, and independent of how people behave there. The land itself is holy. So the Gemara says, an interesting Gemara, Rabbi Brokio, Rabbi Lezer ben Pedos, Hoyumataylin Derech Shar Tveria. Two of the Talmidim of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan had the great yeshiva in Tveria in the third century. So two of his Talmidim, Rabbi Brokio and Rabbi Lezer ben Pedos, uh, they were uh, taking a walk by the Yam Kinneret, by uh, the gate to Tveria. Now, in the ancient world, in the time of the Talmud, Tveria, as today, was a great burial ground. Had large Jewish cemeteries. The uh, great hill uh, on which the tomb of Reb Meir Balanes perches on top, that whole hill is a cemetery. It has thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of graves in it. Because the cemeteries at the time of the Talmud were caves that were dug into the side of the mountain and that uh, because of the shortage of land uh, they uh, let the body decompose for a year and then they collected the bones and put them in an ossuary in a ceramic jar and that jar they put in the, in the cave and then they had room to bury again. It was a uh, different system than we are accustomed to. In any event, they are at the gates of Tveria, and they see they're bringing bodies from Chutzlaretz, right, to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. So here we have two different opinions. And the two opinions are very sharply stated. And you can hear them both today as well. They resonate in our world. Omar lo rabrokio mahoilu elu. Who needs them? What value are they coming now to get buried here? When they were alive, they didn't come. They weren't interested to live in Eretz Israel. And now they come. When he has corpses, I say that this posik refers to them. That's my country, my land, the land of Israel. You treated it abominably. That was while you were alive. You didn't come. And now you have come and you have defiled my country because a mace brings with it, tumor brings with it defilement the misaschem so he's not very happy he didn't come, he said who needs you now Omar lo Rabbi Elezer so Rabbi Elezer ben Pedos said to him no, 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 you're wrong 
Lohi. It's not correct. Kivan Shehem Nigborim Beretz Yisrael. Since they will be buried in the land of Israel, Veniten Lahem Gush Ofor Shel Eretz Yisrael, and they will have the dust, the dirt of Eretz Yisrael will cover their bodies. Mechaperes, it brings forgiveness to them. It says, Vechiper Admoso Amo. Moshe Rabbeinu said, the land of Israel is a kapora for the people. And therefore, uh, if uh, they come even to be buried, so then the holiness of the land is such that that fact that they're buried here is alone sufficient to bring forgiveness for all their sins. Now, uh, we realize... uh, that throughout the ages, the Jews desired to be buried in Eretz Israel. And they came, their bodies were brought from far distant countries in order to be able to be buried in Eretz Israel. And one of the few uh, uh, permissible uh, times when a body can be exhumed and reburied is when the body is taken from outside Eretz Israel to be reburied in the land of Israel. That's because the land itself is holy. And therefore, the holy soil of the land brings a kapora for the person, even if the person did not come during his or her lifetime. And uh, because of that, there was a custom, there still is the custom throughout the Jewish world, that even a Jew that passes away in the exile and is buried outside of Eretz soil. But uh, in the grave, uh, earth from Eretz Yisrael is always placed there. Because the earth of Eretz Yisrael is v'chiper admoso amo. And that's what he said, gush ofom Eretz Yisrael. A piece of the dust of the dirt of Eretz Yisrael is sufficient to bring a kapora for a person. So we see that one of the values of Eretz Yisrael is that it is holy. And the rule in Jewish law is If you are attached to purity, to holiness, then you become somewhat holy. It's, a, uh, it's an osmosis effect. It seeps into you, whether you want it or not. And therefore, Eretz Yisrael has that value that for the Jewish people it brings holiness to us. And it's one of the mitzvahs, there are two mitzvahs, the, the Bali Musa said, there are two mitzvahs that a Jew can, the, the word in Lithuania was that he can walk in with his boots. The one is in the sukkah, right? You go into the sukkah, so you have the mitzvah. And one is Eretz Yisrael. You come to Eretz Yisrael, you walk in, you're here, that's the mitzvah. So that's the only, those are the only mitzvahs that, so to speak, you know, you can do with your boots on. You just walk in. You don't doesn't require uh, any great thought on your part as much as it requires just your presence in a certain place. Second idea regarding Eretz Yisrael. I want to walk in front of God in the land of the living. So the Gemara says, Eretz Yisrael. 
Eretz Yisrael is the land of the living. And the Gemara says that Trias HaMesim begins in Eretz Yisrael. And we have that concept that's called Gilgul Mechilos, that uh, when the dead are resurrected, so there will be tunnels that will exist uh, that will uh, be able that the Jews who are buried outside Eretz Yisrael are able to roll to Eretz Yisrael because in Eretz Yisrael is where Trias HaMesim will be. By tradition, uh, Trias HaMesim will begin on the Mount of Olives, on Harazesim. And that's why Harazesim became the original famous Jewish cemetery in the world. And that's why the Hebra Kaddisha charges more money there than in other places. And you know that Jews like to be first in line, right? So it's going to happen, so you might as well might as well be there. But that's the same concept, that there's a holiness to the land itself. And the holiness is that it's Eretz HaChayim, it's you're alive. Even if the person is physically not alive. But being an Eretz Yisrael, because of Echiper Admoso Amo, uh, then he is considered to be alive. And the Gemara says, Tzadikim b'misosom nikroim chayim. Righteous people, even if they have passed from the world, are still called living people. And rishoyim b'chayim, evil people, even if they're still walking around on the earth, nikroim mesim, they're dead already. The definition of life and death is not necessarily whether a person is breathing. It has to do with our soul. It has to do with our eternity. It has to do with our memory. It has to do with what people think of us, what generations think of us. And therefore, the, gener- the definition of Chaim and Mesim is different. So the Gemara therefore says, Yeshiva Eretz Yisrael mitzvah bifnei Living in Eretz Yisrael is a mitzvah all by itself. So just being here is a mitzvah. You accomplish a mitzvah daily by being here. Not only that, the Gemara says that if you walk four Amos in Eretz Yisrael, every four Amos you walk, you have a mitzvah. I, had a, I knew a great Jew, Elio Kitov, Monkatovsky. He, Elio Kitov wrote the Sefer Parshias and the Sefer HaTodah, uh, he was one. Uh, he was a remarkable person. I remember he came to Chicago. I was 15 years old. Uh, he came to Chicago and he spoke. He was a gifted orator, just a tremendous orator. The old-time Polish orators that could speak for two hours and it was like uh, five minutes. And he was a, he was a tremendously charismatic, wonderful person. And then I got to know him again in Miami, and then uh, here in Eretz soil before he passed away, I saw him a few times. So he told me a story once that a Jew, a rabbi, came from the United States and he was visiting him and he started complaining about how things are here, which is not hard to do, especially if you come from the outside, so then, you know. So if you read the newspaper here, you know, you're depressed every day except for an occasional column, but otherwise, (laughs) 
Otherwise, it's very depressing, right? So he was telling her, he was telling Monkatovsky everything that's wrong. So Monkatovsky took him by the hand, Elio Kitov, he took him by the hand, and he took him outside the door of his apartment, and he said, come, we're going to take a walk. One, two, three, four, a mitzvah. One, two, three, four, a mitzvah. He made him walk four amas every time. He says, a mitzvah. He said, oh, that, that's how you have to look at Eretz Yisrael. Don't tell me what the... So it's a confusion, and I think that's an important point. You, you should not confuse the government, the policies, the, uh, the national structure of the state of Israel with Eretz Yisrael. It's two different things. And because we confuse the two, so unfortunately there are Jews that don't appreciate Eretz Yisrael because they don't like the government. Or they don't like the way Jews behave here. Or they see always the shadows instead of the light. But uh, you're not allowed to see Eretz Yisrael that way. It was the whole lesson with the Miraglim that Moshe sent the spies Everything they said was true. But then they added one thing. They said, but the land is no good. That, that sealed their doom. You could say there are giants in the land. You can say it will be hard to conquer it. You can say there are great fortresses. You can say the United Nations is against us. You can say everything. That's all true. But you can't say anything about Eretz Israel. Motsi di bosom roa. They said bad things about the land. Eretz Ocheles Yoshveli, they said. It's a land that destroys its people. Oh, no, God said, no, no, no. There you cross the red line. Can't talk about Eretz Yisrael. You have to always talk, Bishvocho Shel Eretz Yisrael. You always have to talk about what, the greatness of it. The other things you can say. There's, there's no problem in saying that there are giants in the land, that it's going to be hard and it's going to be this, and the, and the Kanani are here and the Prezi are here, and all of that was true. They, they were not punished for saying that. That was their job to come back and give the report. But their conclusion of saying, Eretz Ocheles Yoshveli, that it's a country that destroys people, oh, no, no, no. No, 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 not that. That God didn't allow. And so that's a basic rule. So again, you know, you can disagree with the government, and they give you plenty of reason to do so. And you can disagree with policies, and you disagree, but you cannot disagree with Eretz Israel because that's an overriding value. It's such an overriding value that Chazal say, Gimel You want to have a fast-tracked Olam You know, like in the computer now, uh, if uh, four seconds is too long for you to wait till you get on the internet, so they have like a streaming broadband that's always on, and you're there in a second, right? You mean the shortcut. So what's the shortcut to Olam So the Gemara says, Zador Eretz Yisrael. If you live in Eretz Yisrael, that's a shortcut to Olam So the rabbi saw it as such an overriding value that, uh, that 
it, it can take you to Olamabor. Just being in Eretz Yisrael can take you in Olamabor. And the Gemara said that you have to treat Eretz Yisrael with respect. The land, again. Gemara says, Ain Megadlin Behemoth Daka of Eretz Yisrael. They didn't want to grow sheep, goats in Eretz Yisrael because they eat up all the grass, they destroy the country. So they had to have special reservations for them in places, mostly in the deserts. There's zoning laws that the Gemara is full of regarding Eretz Yisrael and especially regarding Yerushalayim. You can't have smoke in the city and you can't have manufacturing because the place is holy. You have to treat it holy. And if it's holy, you can't do everything you want. It has restrictions with it. The Gemara says, why does it rain in the world? <laughs> How the Gemara talks. Why does it rain in the world? So the Gemara says, because Eretz Yisrael needs rain. Since Eretz Yisrael needs rain, so it rains in Ireland too. But if Eretz Yisrael wouldn't need rain, and that's what it says, that lo Eretz Mitzrayim, you're going to bring it to a place that's not like the land of Egypt where it never has to rain because they have the Nile River and they can irrigate everything. I'm bringing a place that's dry, that's desert, and you have to hope that it rains. And therefore, since the soil needs rain, so the whole world is blessed with rain. And that's why when we say Geshem and Tal, the prayers, so the prayers are for Eretz Yisrael, even if we are living in different places, in different climes, and because of the fact that every place is blessed because of Eretz Yisrael. The Rosh was asked when he was the Roman Toledo in the uh, 1300s, the early 1300s, why in Spain, in Toledo, which has plenty of rain, uh, why should they say uh, Talumota or Mashivaruach Murdageshen? Because it really doesn't affect them. And the Rosh answered, we don't say it for Toledo, we don't say it for Spain. We say it for Eretz Yisrael. If Eretz Yisrael will be blessed, then every place will be blessed. And if Eretz Yisrael is, God forbid, not blessed, so then the things aren't blessed in other places either. That is how Chazal saw Eretz Yisrael. They saw it as the focus of all blessings. The country itself. And one of the signs that the rabbi said of the impending redemption of the land of, of the Jewish people, rather, is when the land of Israel begins to produce. When you see uh, the fruit market full of every imaginable type of fruit and vegetable, it's something which was unheard of even uh, 30 years ago, 25 years ago in the country. And today we take it for granted. You know, and we're disappointed, you know, that uh, blueberries are out of season. But uh, Chazal saw in every piece of fruit and every vegetable that grew in the land of Israel, they saw holiness. Because that is the idea of mitzvah satluyos of the mitzvahs that are dependent 
upon growing in Eretz Yisrael. Rabbis say, why did Moshe make such a fuss that he wants to go to Eretz Yisrael? And I prayed to God, the Gemara says, 900 times, and until God said, you know, send the Nudnik away, stop. I don't want to hear anymore. Don't talk about it anymore. So the Chazal says, so what does Moshe want? What is Moshe missing? Moshe is going all the Mabah, Moshe has the Torah, Moshe is uh, intimate, so to speak, with God himself. So what does he need? So the Gemara says he needs the mitzvahs of Leosporets. He needs to eat an apple that doesn't have orla, kilayim, that has miser, that has truma. That's what he needs. So we take it for granted, right? By us, an apple is an apple is an apple. But Jews always saw in it more than the apple. They always saw in it, it's a holiness because it's sanctified. It's sanctified with so many mitzvahs. And Chazal even goes so far as to say that all the mitzvahs that are performed outside the land of Israel, film, Kriyashma, Tefillah, all of the mitzvahs that Jews do the world over are only to keep in training for doing mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael. And that the real mitzvahs are only in Eretz Yisrael. So it gives us a different sense of being here it certainly, uh, uh, I always have that feeling, at least, on the rare times that I eat a fruit, that, uh, you know, look at me, right? Generally, I always have the feeling, you know, Moshe couldn't do it, and I'm doing it. Moshe wasn't here, and I'm here. Right? I take it for granted. But the rabbi saw in it this great holiness, this great uniqueness, this great special feeling. Because it's Eretz Asher Ene Hashem Elokecho It's the holy land. It's a place where God is, so to speak. And because of that, the rabbis called it Palter in Shomelech, the king's palace. So there are duties upon us because if you're in the king's palace you're supposed to behave yourself. But however that may be it's still the king's palace. And therefore that is the feeling the emotion that goes with it. Now Chazal saw in uh, Yeshu Veretz Yisrael of Overriding values. They said, that, for instance, Yishuvarit Yisrael in certain instances overrides the Shabbat. The Gemara says, Mutter, it is permissible, Lokachas Botim Beretz Yisrael Minakum, on Shabbat to buy property in Eretz Yisrael from the hands of non Jews because of the fact that Yishuvarit Yisrael takes precedence. And uh, the Gemara says that Eretz Yisrael domel the mitzvah of Eretz Yisrael is equal to the mitzvah of circumcision ma mila just like the mitzvah of mila is docha Shabbos and if the child is born 
on Shabbat and his Brit is on Shabbat. That was usually the origin of the name Shabsai. If I was a child that was born on Shabbat and circumcised on Shabbat, so he was a Shabbos Jew. So too, Eretz Yisrael, Dolche Shabbat. Eretz Yisrael also, certain instances, is also Dolche de Shabbat. And therefore, we have this great quality simply because of the holiness of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Gemara says even more radical statements. Uh, if the Gemara wouldn't say it, I certainly wouldn't say it. Certainly not on television. But it's a Gemara. The Gemara says, A Jew should live in Eretz Yisrael, even in a city, in a community that is mainly non-Jewish. Rather than living in Chutz Loretz, in a city that is very Jewish. Anybody who lives in Eretz Israel sooner or later comes to the realization that there's a God in the world. And in Chutz Loretz, after a while, God takes a very secondary position. Now, that's a very strong statement. If we would apply it today, we could say it without mentioning names of communities, but we all know, you know, that there are holy Jewish communities throughout the world. And here in Israel, there are places where, you know, it's not so hot. It's not so great. But the Gemara says Eretz Yisrael is such an overriding value. Living in Eretz Yisrael is such an overriding value that it overrides that too. The Gemara says, Kol Ador Be'eretz Yisrael, Shorui below Ovam. Someone who lives in Eretz Yisrael is as though he lives without sin. So the Mephoshim explained, because the Yisurim of Eretz Yisrael are of such a nature that our sins are forgiven daily. And if you think about it, every day, every day something happens, right? You listen to the news. I don't know anybody that walks away from the news happy. So that instant of pain, when you hear the stupidities that go on, and the problems, right? So that instant is a kapora already. Because one of the uh, facets of Eretz Yisrael is that it's mechaper. And since it's niknis biyasurim, so therefore the sins are more easily erased. So there was always an eternal covenant between the Jewish people and the land of Israel, whoever the Jews were. The Jews always, they named their uh, streets after uh, the land of Israel. You know, I went, went uh, once uh, through Provence, every little town where Jews once were, Lunel and Montpellier and uh, Arles and uh, Orange, 
and the uh, squares, all the towns where the Chachmei Provence lived. So there are no Jews left. All the Jews are gone. There isn't even a Jewish cemetery left. There's nothing. But in all of them, in the medieval part of the town that is preserved, there is a street called Rue Jerusalem. And Jews always remembered it. Whoever they went. And Nachman of Breslov said, every step that I take is towards Jerusalem. That was the covenant that Jews had. And even though uh, for centuries on end they had no chance to physically achieve it, but mentally in their minds they achieved it. Spiritually they achieved it. They were home. Therefore, even in the darkest places of Eastern Europe and in the mellows of Morocco, uh, Jews were attached to Eretz Yisrael. And they were attached to Eretz Yisrael because of the fact that it was a value. It was not a matter of Jewish nationalism. It was a matter of a spiritual value that held a place in their heart and soul. And uh, that's part of the problem. Uh, what happened uh, over a hundred years ago with the coming of secular Zionism is that uh, secular Zionism uh, replaced the value of Eretz Israel and it replaced it with the value of Jewish nationalism, of being a nation. To a certain extent, we're going to be like everybody else. We have our own country and our own flag and our own army and our own anthem and we'll be like everyone else. And it's no surprise, therefore, that in 1904, when England offered Uganda to Herzl, he took it. Because he wasn't sold on Eretz Israel, he was sold on the fact that the Jews need a national home, they need a place of refuge. And that national home, a place of refuge, could be Uganda, right? It's just too bad that America didn't offer San Diego. And the Zionist Congress approved the Ugandan plan. Fell apart because evidently God was not interested in Uganda. And it's interesting that the Eastern European Jews, led by Weizmann, uh, were the main opponents of this idea because uh, the Eastern European Jew, even when he was secularized, still was attached to Eretz Israel. Even if he was a national, a believer in Jewish nationalism, even if he was a believer in, uh, and in socialism and in all of the other things that rode the horse of Zionism, labor Zionism, all of the things, all of the isms, but they still were attached to Eretz Israel. And in being attached to Eretz Israel, they were not willing to take Uganda. And that was the whole discussion uh, throughout uh, the, uh, all of the 20th century. And now that we live in a post-Zionist, modernist period, so we're back again that Eretz Israel is not the value anymore. 
There are other values. But that Eretz Yisrael should be a value? So that, that no longer resonates. That's part of the damage of secularism. It's not that people don't put on film. It's not that people are not Sabbath observers. That's not the issue. And those who think it's the issue only see it in tunnel vision in a very narrow sense. It's that the whole view of the Jewish people, the whole history of the Jewish people, the whole goal, the whole etgar, the whole challenge of the Jewish people is different. Because now it's, no, you know, why should we, uh, now the, we want to be Venezuela. We really want to be Canada, but Canada is big, so we'll settle for being Venezuela. But that's not Eretz Yisrael. And that vision, and that way of viewing it, uh, is really uh, the casualty of uh, a century of secularism. That's the main problem with secularism. And it reflects itself in a hundred different issues. Uh, but that's the main uh, situation that exists. So the Gomorrah gives us an example of Eretz Yisrael again. The Gomorrah says, Maaseb Reb Yudah ben Bobov, Reb Matisyo ben Chorosh, Reb Chanino ben Achi. Now these three uh, great Rabonim, Tanoim, lived after the Hadrianic persecutions uh, when all the rabbis, Rabbi Yudah ben Boba, will eventually be uh, martyred by the Romans. And the uh, Eretz soil is falling apart. The Romans are running it. Uh, the Jews are being persecuted. Uh, the uh, yeshivas find it hard to maintain themselves. It's not a happy time for the Jewish people. It's about the year 150 of the Common Era, 140 of the Common Era. So they, uh, so they, they're leaving. They're Yordim. They're going to leave Eretz Yisrael. And they have justifications for it. You're talking about three of the great Tanoim. Higiu Liflatus. So they came to the city of Philetus, which is on the border, the border of Israel and Syria. And they remembered that they're leaving Eretz Yisrael. They saw the sign, Mokshim Lefonecho, the border, Gvul Lefonecho, the border is ahead of you. They have to get their passport ready to cross. They remembered that they're leaving Eretz Yisrael. All of a sudden, they lifted up their eyes. So the Mephorshim say, what do you mean they lifted up their eyes? All of a sudden, they looked into the future. And they looked into the past. And their eyes filled with tears. And they ripped their clothes in agony. And they said... Yeshiva Seretz Yisrael Shkula Keneged Kola Mitzvah Shabbat Torah. Staying in Eretz Yisrael outweighs all of the mitzvahs of the Torah, the Gemara says. The Chosru Limkoma. And they came back home. 
They couldn't leave. So we have halachas uh, that it's not so simple uh, to leave Eretz Yisrael. There has to be a very good cause. So in today's world, I don't know. In today's world, you know, you get on a plane and it's, it's not such a big deal. And who doesn't want to uh, see Cyprus and uh, Croatia and other places? So uh, you know, it's we don't we don't hear how that resonates either. But I know Jews here that have never left Yerushalayim in their lifetime. Never gone outside the, the environs of Yerushalayim. And I know Jews who've never left there at Sisera. Because again, it's a value. And there are certain people who feel that value within their bones. Gemara says, ain't Torah, Ketorah, Seretz Yisrael. So we see that also, even though there are great yeshivas all over the world, but all the Talmidah Chachamim come to learn in Eretz Yisrael, right? With the thousands of young men that come from the exile to learn in Eretz Yisrael. Ain't Torah, Ketorah, Seretz Yisrael. And that is a, a very appropriate place to uh, to end this first uh, segment of Rabbi Wine. Ain't uh, Torah, Ketorah, Seretz Yisrael. No such, no, uh, it's, it's not learning Torah like learning Torah in Israel, basically. Matis Weingast with you here on uh, the 10th of Av. We commemorate, uh, we observe Tisha B'Av today. Tisha B'Av actually was yesterday, of course. And uh, we observe it today uh, because we do not fast, except for Yom Kippur on, uh, on Shabbos. We don't have any signs of mourning, open signs of mourning on Shabbos. And fasting, in this case, is one of them. So we do not uh, fast on um on Shabbos and Tisha B'Av is observed today until tonight. And because today is actually the 10th of Av, those who have the custom of waiting until the um, the morning, until after the morning of the day after Tisha B'Av to uh, resume certain uh, certain things that were held in the bands for the three weeks, nine days, that doesn't apply because uh, today is the 10th of Av already. The fast ends in uh, this area. North New Jersey area uh, tonight at uh, 8.37. Check in your area where it ends. It's a hot day today. Right now it is uh, just about 85 degrees again here in the North New Jersey area. Going up to a high of 96. Excessive uh, heat advisory today until 10 p.m. Overnight it's supposed to go down to about 76 degrees. Quite more mild than... uh, during the day, a 20-point drop. In Jerusalem, it's 85 degrees and uh, going down to 69 degrees tonight. Uh, kind of Julian is not with us this week uh, because of the fast. We hope to uh, have her join us next week here on JM Sunday. Programming continues throughout the day. An inspirational set of programs uh, starting at 9.15. Rabbi uh, Stephen Weil will be um, presenting an in-depth look at the Tishabov and the liturgy from the Boca Raton Synagogue in Boca Raton, Florida. That'll be until 2.30. And then Project Inspire will have an end of Tishabov webcast with Charlie Rari and uh, Project Inspire staff members. The program is titled Guaranteed Success in Personal Growth, and that's here on the Nachum Siegel Network. So keep us 
on all day long as you go through Tisha B'Av and uh, as you go through the through the fast. We're going to continue with Rabbi Wine and a uh, with with a lecture on uh, with a lecture on uh, the Six Day War, and that will take us until uh, until nine o'clock when we close up with Hatikva. So thank you everyone for joining me this morning, Matis Weingast, with you here on uh, on Tishbov. We are live with you as we observe the day of Tishbov. Here is Rabbi Beryl Wine. Enjoy. Probably the most uh, dramatic event in recent Jewish history, certainly uh, uh, ranking as uh, one of the most emotional experiences that the Jewish people have had, has been the uh, Battle of the Six-Day War. The backdrop to the event uh, is complicated. But the basic backdrop of the event was that Nasser, in his attempt to unify the Arabs, in his attempt to uh, achieve his goal of pan-Arabism under his domination and under the domination of Egypt, ran into many great problems, most of them with the Arabs, who were not willing to be his uh, client subjects. He was engaged in a uh, bitter uh, civil war in Yemen, in which the Saudi Arabian royalists uh, supported uh, the uh, royalists in Yemen against uh, Nasser and the Soviet-backed insurgents. And it was a quicksand. It was a morass. Uh, Over 50,000 Egyptian troops were involved. It was, as we have unfortunately come to learn, Another example of a larger power getting involved in a uh, war that they could not win. It's much the effect that the United States had in Vietnam and that uh, the Soviet Union is having in Afghanistan. The larger power on paper certainly should be able to win and prevail very easily, but it doesn't turn out that way. And uh, Nasser had a uh, faltering economy. He was... uh, He had bankrupted Egypt. He had mortgaged the entire Egyptian cotton crop to Russia to pay for armaments. He was badly overextended. He was in a war in Yemen that he couldn't win. And he sought, therefore, a shortcut that would allow him to achieve all of his goals in one fell swoop. And that shortcut naturally had to do with the state of Israel, namely with the destruction of the state of Israel. If he could mount a victory over the... Jews, then he would certainly become the hero of the Arab world, the leader of the Arab world. His his lifelong ambition of domination could be achieved. Now, Nasser had many enemies in the Arab world, foremost of whom was King Hussein of Jordan. Uh, They called each other the most vile names imaginable, but in the history of the world, calling each other names doesn't necessarily uh, prevent, uh, certainly in the Arab world, it doesn't prevent the the brotherly embrace and the kiss of alliance. He also uh, was not on very good terms with Syria. Syria had at one time in the early 1960s been a part of Egypt in a... uh, in an impossible marriage called the United Arab Republic. 
and uh, Syria had broken away finally from Nasser's embrace, and the military government that was installed in Syria was not anxious to do Nasser's bidding. Nevertheless, Nasser was the consummate uh, politician, uh, diplomat, wheeler-dealer, and he, uh, as early as 1965, had in mind that he was going to somehow deal a death blow to the state of Israel, which would uh, forever immortalize him in the Arab world and temporarily at least give him domination over the Arab world. It would eclipse the Saudis. It would give him a chance. Egypt is a country with a lot of, a lot of people and little resources, and Saudi Arabia is a country with little people and a lot of resources. You know, your brains and my beauty and we have an unbeatable combination. All of that played a role in the coming of the Six-Day War. Another role was also played by Russia. Russia always has its own motives, and most of the time they are sinister. It was at the beginning of this time, beginning in 1965, that the first trickle of emigration of Jews from Russia began to occur. Jews were let out of Russia. Most of them turned up in Israel. And, uh, in fact, uh, it was used by Russia as a means of blackmail against its Arab clients. Uh, many a time it was said to the Arabs that if you don't follow the Russian line and if you uh, abandon us and you want to go with the West, and then there was another three or 400,000 Russian Jews whom we will allow to go to Israel. And uh, since the Russian Jews initially who came to Israel were of a very high caliber uh, intellectually and technologically speaking, uh, the Arabs saw it as a terrible threat. And this was a, uh, a type of blackmail that was uh, very effective. In order to keep the blackmail going, though, Russia had to let out some Jews to keep the threat effective. And therefore, what Russia did was uh, begin small-scale immigration into Israel of Russian Jews under the guise of reuniting families, all sorts of things. Now, Russia and Israel then had diplomatic relations in 1965. Russia had broken off diplomatic relations once before with Israel, but it restored them in the early 1960s. And this uh, relationship between Russia and Israel was always a strained and a difficult one. And at the heart of the matter was the issue of the Russian Jews, whether or not they would be allowed free immigration, whether in substantial numbers they would be allowed to come to Israel. Russia also sold arms to the Arabs, to Egypt, to Syria. Jordan always purchased its arms from the West, from England and the United States. Russia sold enormous amount of arms, and Russia sold the most modern and sophisticated equipment. And in order to enable the Egyptians to assimilate that equipment and use it well, Russia sent along advisors. And at one time, Russia had as many as 25,000 military advisors in Russia. There was an, in Egypt, there was an entire Russian colony outside of Cairo. And uh, they were not well-liked either by the Egyptian people or the Egyptian army, but they served the purpose. They trained the Egyptian army in the use of these weapons. 
advanced MiG fighters, uh, Russian tanks, the latest tanks. Many of them were tanks that were even the Warsaw Pact nations at that time did not have in their arsenal. And artillery, and it was tra- they were trained in Egyptian, and uh, the Egyptians were trained in Russian military tactics as well. And uh, beginning in 1965, Nasser had a two-year goal of bringing the Egyptian army up to a point where he felt convinced that they would be able to overcome the Israelis. In terms of numbers and in terms of guns and armament, the advantage was all on the side of the Egyptians. Add to that the... uh, fact that Israel had a hard time getting arms in the world. The United States then was in the midst of one of its uh, pious periods when it embargoed arms sales to the Middle East to all sides. Uh, As a practical matter, it meant that Israel couldn't get any arms because the Arabs were getting their arms from Russia without any problems. Uh, England did sell to Israel. Israel was able to buy chieftain tanks and centurion tanks. England did not sell them the latest models, but the Israelis renovated them. The Israelis took and put on uh, better guns. They simplified the tanks. Uh, The system uh, so far in Israel has been to make things simpler and less complicated because in desert warfare and sand warfare, all of the complicated uh, uh, computer type of technology which exists on war machines gets clogged with sand and it becomes useless. And therefore, uh, relatively speaking, the more simple the better. Today the situation has changed because of the technology and uh, there's no such thing as a simple weapon anymore. But in the 1960s the Israelis were able to purchase these types of tanks from England and to renovate them. They also had some light tanks that they bought from France, AMX tanks, which uh, were little more than training tanks. But Israel struck a deal, and uh, that's to the credit of Shimon Peres, that he's the man who negotiated the deal. They struck a deal with France. For various reasons, de Gaulle, at the beginning of his regime, was uh, not pro-Israel, but he was against the Arabs. Eventually, his good sense would get hold of him, and he would become, uh, he would say that the French uh, national interest required that it be on the side of the Arabs. But he uh, initially agreed to a series of arms deals which built up the Israeli army and especially the Israeli Air Force. Israel was able to purchase from France three types of planes. One was called the Fuga Magistar, which was a small training jet that nobody else in the world ever used for combat, but the Israelis would use it for close support combat in tank warfare. It was a one-seater, small, rather slow jet. The second jet that they bought was a Mystère. Mystère was a bomber, French bomber. And the third uh, plane that they bought was the famous Mirage, which today still, in its updated version, is the mainstay of the French uh, Air Force. Uh, The company that produced these planes was owned by a Jew, not much of a Jew. Uh, In fact, later in life, he even converted and became a Roman Catholic. But at this time, he was a Jew, 
and uh, he uh, received a license from the French government, and he sold the planes to Israel, and Israel uh, developed them, they incorporated them in the Israeli Air Force. It became the Israeli Air Force, these three types of French jets. For various reasons, the uh, world and the Arabs were unaware of the potency of this plane. They were unaware of the fact that uh, these jets used correctly could negate a great deal of the Arab firepower, and that uh, the jets had uh, great uh, potential if used in, a, uh, in an opportunistic fashion. Also, Israel bought gunboats from France, special small gunboats. Uh, not buying battleships or cruisers or even destroyers, but small gunboats, but very highly mobile and with a tremendous amount of firepower. Rockets, missiles, so that a gunboat, this type of a gunboat, was the equal in firepower to World War II battleships at uh, a fraction of the cost and at a fraction of the size and with a great deal more mobility and less vulnerability to attack the planes and to other surface vessels. By this time, uh, David Ben-Gurion had passed from the scene as the leader of the uh, Labor Party, and the new Prime Minister of Israel after Sharet was Levi Eshkol. Eshkol was a uh, very good technocrat. He was a person that ran the government very well, but he was not an inspiring figure at all. He was not a good speaker, and uh, he uh, had very little of the charisma that would be necessary at this uh, moment of crisis. In world Jewry, everybody, we all rolled along in a, in a fool's paradise that uh, Israel would always be protected and that the world would protect it and that there would be no problems. That was further fueled by the fact that the United Nations had its peacekeeping force present in the Sinai. It had its peacekeeping force present at the entrance to the Gulf of Aqaba to guarantee free shipping. And even though Nasser had violated his word and did not allow any free ship, Israeli shipping, or even any ships to Israel in the Suez Canal, and the state of Israel and the Jewish world felt it could live with that inconvenience, and that the war was not a problem. It wasn't going to happen. The Arabs weren't going to attack again. And that was the uh, situation at the, in the early part of May 1967. But Nasser, in May 1967, on the basis of the reports that he received from his Russian advisors and reports that he received regarding Israeli strength as well, felt that the time was propitious, that he now had an army well-trained enough to mount a bitter and complete war and that he would be able to uh, conquer Israel handily and he therefore decided that he would not wait any longer. His internal problems and his foreign problems were such a nature that he felt that by delaying he would only compound the problem. So in order to solve the problem, he was going to go to war. 
the Israelis celebrated their uh, Independence Day parade uh, on the 19th anniversary of the State of Israel in May 1967, blissfully oblivious to what was going to happen in the next three weeks. This was a storm that blew up overnight. It uh, had almost no uh, precedent in the speed that it occurred and in the lethal danger that uh, now was present. Nasser announced that the Egyptian army was going to go on maneuvers in the Sinai. Uh, going on maneuvers in the Sinai was a violation of the agreement, of the uh, peacekeeping agreement between uh, Israel and Egypt and the United Nations that had uh, prevailed since the end of the Sinai campaign. Again, but Sinai belonged to Egypt and uh, Egypt had sovereignty over it and there really was no way to keep the Egyptian army out. So the Egyptian army crossed with great fanfare and in extremely large numbers. They crossed the uh, Suez Canal and came east into the Sinai. Israel protested, but nothing happened. Nasser, uh, in the time-honored uh, manner, uh, it's almost the repeat of the story of Hitler, where he took one country and then he would digest it and look around and see if there were any repercussions, and if there weren't any, so then he would he'd go on to the next move. Nasser saw that nothing happened. The United Nations took no action. No one took any action. So then he moved to the second step. The second step is that he would prevent... Israeli shipping from coming up the Gulf of Su uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. No ship would be able to sail past Sharm el Sheikh. And he installed guns. He claims he claimed to have installed guns. Later, it was found out to have been a fake. But he claimed to have installed guns, artillery guns, on the point at Sharm el Sheikh, and that any ships that were bound into the Gulf of Aqaba that were headed for the Israeli port of Eilat would be shot at. Now, this was an interference with the hallowed principle of international law, free navigation of the waterways of the world, to which all of the major countries in the world had signed an agreement. They were all committed that such a thing would not be allowed. Poor little Israel went and complained, and everybody told them, you know, to take it easy. They'll try and work it out. Naturally, uh, there were the, the United States uh, uh, considered... The United States considered sending one of its own flagships up the Gulf of Aqaba to test the blockade to see whether Nasser really meant it. But for all the uh, good intentions and good ideas, nothing happened. President Johnson made soothing remarks. Uh, Israel saw a pattern beginning to emerge. The next pattern... The next piece of the pattern was when uh, Nasser ordered the United Nations peacekeeping troops off of Egyptian territory. He said that they were only there at the sufferance of the Egyptian government. The Egyptian government that uh, invited them there in 1957, now it was 10 years later, and he was inviting them all to go home. 
the general secretary of the United Nations, who then was a Burmese, who knew? Uh, agreed that Nasser had a right to do so. We have very bad experiences with secretary generals of the United Nations. First, Mr. Waldheim, who's our noted friend, and then this Burmese. It just, uh, it just doesn't go for us. I don't think you can get the job if you're, uh, <coughs> if you're in good standing with certain peoples in the world. In any event, the uh, United Nations withdrew its peacekeeping force. Uh, the General, Secretary General flew t and to Egypt and had conferences with Nasser, but it all came to nothing. And again, you had uh, shipping blocked in the Gulf of Aqaba. You had the United Nations peacekeeping forces removed. And you had a large Egyptian army in the Sinai moving towards the Israeli border. Now Israel began to take notice. And Israel warned Egypt uh, not to continue along that line because uh, Israel would certainly defend itself and go to war. The United States, as is its custom, issued pronouncements that everybody should, you know, take a shower and two aspirin and rest up and they'll be back to them later. And that really didn't do anything for anyone, except it showed, again, the impotence that of America in a situation such as this, where there really, really was it had no more influence on the situation. The United States attempted to talk to Russia, to have Russia restrain Egypt, but instead of restraining Egypt, Russia encouraged Egypt. Russia felt that it had everything to gain here, uh, if the Arab states won, it would enhance Russia. If the Arab states lost, it would make them more dependent upon Russia. That was Russia's uh, terribly uh, cynical policy. But the policy was correct. That Russia could not lose. If the Arabs won, then the Russians won. If the Arabs lost, then where else was, were the Arabs going to go except the Russia? Who else was going to save them? And that's exactly how it worked out for Russia. So Russia had nothing to lose by this, everything to gain, and Russia encouraged it, therefore. Now, Nasser, in his uh, diabolical plan, uh, wanted that Israel should be surrounded on all sides. It should not be a war of Egypt alone against Israel, because he was afraid, and deep down in his heart, that Israel would be able to mobilize a sufficient army and be able to defend itself successfully against Egypt. He therefore uh, had a conference with the leaders in Damascus, the Syrians. The Syrians have remained until today the most implacable foes of the state of Israel, the Syrians and the Iraqis, far more than any of the other Arabs. And the Syrians agreed to join in the venture. The Syrians agreed that they would shell the Israeli positions in the Galil from the Golan Heights, which they controlled. But they, uh, the uh, Syrians, uh, to a certain extent, double-crossed Nasser because they never sent their army into Israel in the Six-Day War. They shelled, and they fired upon the Israeli targets, and they pinned down a certain number of troops, but they never sent their army in. 
unlike the Yom Kippur War, which we'll also discuss later, where the Assyrians were the main threat almost. What really uh, clinched the matter that there was going to be a war was the behavior of King Hussein. Hussein was afraid that he would miss the train. He saw now that Syria and Egypt, his two arch enemies in the Middle East, had made an alliance. On paper, his military analysts showed him that, he, that there was a very strong likelihood that Egypt and Syria would win the war. They also convinced him that diplomatically the world would do nothing to support Israel. And therefore he was afraid that he would lose because if Egypt and Syria were successful, then they would come not only against the Israeli part of Palestine, they would come against the Jordanian part of Palestine also. And he was afraid that he'd be expelled from the old city of Jerusalem and lose that stature and to lose the trade and the commerce and the tourism. Therefore, when he added it up, he had to go into the war. The Israelis always mocked him afterwards, and they said that the, in 67, when he should have stayed out, he went in, and in 73, when he should have went in, he stayed out. But in, he decided that he would go in, and he met with Nasser. You have the famous picture of the newspapers of the Times, uh, how embracing the two arch enemies who said uh, absolutely terribly uh, insulting things about each other and their ancestry and everything else, uh, embraced in the, uh, in the hug of uh, anticipated victory over the state of Israel and throwing the Jews into the sea. And the Jordanians placed their army under the command of an Egyptian general so that there would be a unified command. There was one Egyptian general that was in charge of all the armies, and it was all under one unified command. The uh, alliance with Nasser by Hussein sealed the fate of the Six-Day War. Israel knew then that it had to go to war because of the fact that they were now surrounded on all sides and that it was not a matter that would go away. Uh, Abba Ibn, who then was uh, the Israeli foreign minister, traveled the world, stopping at all the world's capitals to enlist the good wishes of the world leaders, but nobody would do anything to stop it. And there, Abba Ibn got the first inkling from General de Gaulle that France was also about ready to change sides before the Six-Day War which de Gaulle told, warned uh, even that if Israel goes to war, it will lose the friendship of France. Well, Israel had no choice. Uh, even had outlined to de Gaulle very clearly. So de Gaulle signaled the change of policy, which after the Six-Day War would become so evident, uh, France thought, uh, sought a uh, means to reestablish its influence in the Arab world. I need not tell you that the Jews throughout the world were frightened out of their minds because here was the specter of the Holocaust happening all over again barely 25 years after the first one. 
the state would be destroyed. There would no one would defend it. And the uh, Arabs, in their typical hyperbole, they broadcast all sorts of threats. You know, the Jewish women, prepare yourselves. Uh, we're going to throw all the men into the sea. You know, everybody. We... And there was a man by the name of Ahmed Shukeri, who was the head of the Palestine Liberation Organization. That was in its first Gilgal before, uh, before, before Yasser. Yasser didn't have a beard then. before Yasser took it over. So this guy, Shukeri, who was uh, a Saudi, and he was a, a foul-mouthed, evil person, he said the worst things, the worst threats, and he said them on public uh, interviews and television, what he was going to do. And therefore, the Jewish world trembled. It trembled. If I, I, I don't know. I don't remember uh, very well Hitler, but the impression that I had is that there was the fear was greater than even before Hitler of what was going to happen. And I remember that we had a day of prayer in uh, my synagogue in Miami Beach. Uh, there were days of prayer throughout the Jewish world. I mean, the synagogue was packed. People walked in off the streets. People who hadn't been in a synagogue Yom Kippur maybe for 25 years. They didn't know what to do with themselves because they felt the imminent destruction of the Jewish people. I also remember as a personal vignette that I don't know what got into people, but the, uh, the, the rabbinate in the United States, the combined rabbinate, all sent out messages that we should all go visit our local priests and ministers to try and enlist public support for Israel. And you look back at it, it was... Absolutely ludicrous. But I remember that we had a very uh, beautiful Episcopal church not far from us, and I tried to get an appointment with the with the uh, rector of the church, and he wouldn't see me. He just wouldn't see me. And I don't think that my experience was uh, isolated. The rest of the world was more worried about the baseball season, about the important things that were going to happen. And the Jewish people felt isolated, frightened, just uh, cut off completely from any solace or hope. The Israeli army mobilized, and they stood mobilized for almost two weeks. And that was very expensive. In Israel, the mobilization, and as we'll, uh, I'll point out to you later that part of the problem in the... Uh, in the Yom Kippur War was the expense of mobilizing the army. And they, they had had so many false alarms and mobilized them so many times, and every time you mobilize them, it cost them three or eight or ten million dollars or something. So they decided that this time they wouldn't mobilize. You know, they were going to save the three million. So they were at standing an army at, for almost two weeks. And uh, Dayan, who uh, was, uh, they formed a government of national unity. So, so serious was the situation that they formed the government of national unity. So serious was the situation that the left wing, the Marach, brought in Menachem Begin into the government as a minister without portfolio, but as a minister in the government. I want you to know that Begin, uh, Begin was thrown out of the Knesset with regularity. Ben-Gurion, in all the years that Begin was in the Knesset, never referred to him by name. He said, the person who was sitting next to member of Knesset, Bader. 
And uh, they brought him in. They made a wall-to-wall -wall coalition. Eshkol made a speech to the nation to be strong, and he broke down in the middle of the speech. It was the most depressing thing imaginable. I have that speech recorded here, but I'm not going to play it. But uh, I, I, it's something to hear, that he's, he broke in the middle of the speech telling everybody else to be strong. And the, no one knew what was going to happen. Uh, Dayan took a commanding role as Minister of Defense. And Dayan insisted that Israel strike first. That the only hope in this war was a what is necessarily called a preemptive strike. And in order to put the enemy off, uh, he made an announcement that the, he feels that the crisis is ending. In another two weeks, they've been standing there mobilized. Nothing happens. He doesn't think anything is going to happen, and that part of the Israeli army is being demobilized, which he did. He sent them home for Shabbos and brought them back Saturday night also at great expense. But that was part Israel now engaged in this war of nerves. And on Monday morning, in the first week in June in 1967, the war began. I remember in, in being in shul for the first minute in the morning, and people came in and said it. I remember that people didn't go to work that way. People didn't do anything. People just stayed. They stayed in shul. They stayed just people didn't go anywhere. And because of the fact that the Israeli uh, radio went on blackout, as far as news was concerned, during the, almost the first 18 hours of the war, there was no news. And the Arabs broadcast their news naturally. So their news was they're, they're in Tel Aviv, they're in Jerusalem, they're bombing, they're destroying, they're killing. Uh, what happened was that the Arabs believed their own propaganda. Hussein went into the war because he heard Nasser announce that the Israeli Air Force was destroyed. Nasser got on the radio and said he destroyed the Israeli Air Force. So Hussein went into the war. What had really happened was that on the morning, that Monday morning, Israel launched a surprise attack and in an hour and a half destroyed the entire Arab Air Forces of Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. Over 500 planes were destroyed at the loss of less than, I think it was 19 planes for the Israelis. Most of the Egyptian planes were caught on the ground. They attacked for, at tea time, 8.15 in the morning. Everybody went to get his cup of tea, and they caught 95% of the planes on the ground and destroyed them. Uh, they flew so low, they flew as low as six feet over the Mediterranean for almost 70 miles. I mean, that's some job of being a pilot. At flying at speeds of uh, sound and over the sound barrier in order to escape the radar. And the Arab air forces were destroyed. Once the Arab air forces were destroyed, then Dayan said the war was won already. You still had to fight the war, but, but the tactical advantage had changed immediately. Azer Weitzman was then the commander of the air force, General Mordechai Hode, others... And they put across a, uh, a, an unbelievable feat of arms in being able to turn the planes around in record time, sending them. Every plane almost hit its target. It was just, it was a, it was a classic example of uh, the destruction of an air force by another air force. 
Never had there been such a lopsided battle. Then Israel attacked on the Egyptian front. The, Egypt, the Israelis were divided into three main tank columns. One was led by Sharon. One was led by a man called Yafi, Mordechai Yafi, who later became the head of the Israeli Natural Forest Preserves. And the third was a general by the name of Tal. And these three tank corps burst into the Gaza Strip and, and defeated the Egyptian army, encircled the Egyptian army, and burst into the Sinai, and the Egyptian army was done away with in three days. Surrounded, uh, shot by planes, there, is a, there are famous pictures, uh, if you'll see, of the entire Mitla Pass, which is the road, the pass through the mountains in the Sinai, just end-to-end -end Egyptian vehicles in a line, all shot up, burned, destroyed, trucks, tanks, artillery. The panic was on. Over uh, 5,000 Egyptian soldiers surrendered immediately, and the Israelis were at the Suez in record time. It, they got to the Suez faster than they did in the Sinai campaign. When that happened, uh, Nasser, there was nothing between the Israelis and Cairo. Uh, Nasser panicked very badly after announcing that he was winning the war and winning the war and winning the war. He all of a sudden was on the verge of losing his country. Hussein, as I mentioned to you, made the error of coming into the war. Hussein attacked in Jerusalem, uh, trying to capture the uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the Jordanians attacked Government House, which was the British uh, High Commissioner's residence, and after uh, and that was the United Nations uh, headquarters. And after a short battle, the Jordanians won it, and then the Israelis counterattacked, and the Israelis took it from them. Then Israel decided that it was going to bring some of the troops from the Sinai because that war was won already. They were going to bring some of the troops up and fight for Jerusalem. The fight for Jerusalem was concentrated in uh, a number of places. One place was Ammunition Hill, which, were, as the name implies, was a British ammunition fortress which protected East Jerusalem, and the Jordanians had extensive bunkers and defenses. And the paratroopers on uh, Tuesday night and on Wednesday morning of the war captured a high casualty that that piece when they when they had that piece so then the Jordanians were outflanked they had to move their men the Israelis reached Mount Scopus and then they reached Mount of Olives or the Augusta Victoria Hospital going around the back of Jerusalem around the east side of Jerusalem until finally they had isolated the uh, area of the old city itself and the old city they attacked on uh, Wednesday morning in a uh, in a uh, in a charge through Lions Gate through the northeastern gate of the city, and miraculously the Jordanians fled. They did not really put up much resistance. If it would have been house to house fighting, if it would have been uh, any sort of uh, concerted effort if they wanted to make it Stalingrad, then who knows what would have happened. But the, the Jordanian army fled, and in fleeing, 
allowed the Israelis to capture the old city and to capture the western wall, the Kotel Amarovi. I want you to hear, I have a record uh, of the Israeli news broadcast, the live news broadcast of the capture of the wall, and you'll also hear the blowing of the shofar by Rabbi Gorin, who then was the chief chaplain of the Israeli army. You'll hear the gunfire in the background. You'll also hear the memorial prayer that he made for the fallen soldiers and the weeping of the men as they came to the Kotel. So if you'll listen to this, please. ואנחנו צרודים עכשיו מצעקות ההתלהבות וההתרגשות שנכנסנו פנימה בראש כל השיירה. החפק שלנו על זחל פרץ את השער, דרס על אופנוע, עבר במחנה ירדני, ועלינו ראשונים ובהתלהבות עצומה, ישר הנה אל הרחבה. מוישלה, סגני, מזה הרבה שנים, רץ מיד עם כמה חבר'ה והניפו את הדגל לכותל המערבי. ועכשיו כל העיר העתיקה בידינו, ואנחנו מאוד מאוד מאושרים. אני יורד ברגע זה, ברגע זה, אני יורד במדרגות אל הכותל. אינני אדם דתי, מעולם לא הייתי, אבל זהו הכותל, ואני נוגע באבני הכותל המערבי.
בעת נערוך אזכרה לזכר חללי צה"ל שנפלו במערכה הזאת נגד כל אויבי ישראל. אל מלא רחמים שוכן במרומים. תמצאנו מנוחה נכונה על כנפי השכינה במעלות קדושים, גיבורים וטהורים. כזוהר העקיע מאירים ומזהירים לנשמות חיילי צבא ההגנה לישראל שנפלו במערכה הזאת נגד אויבי ישראל ושנפלו על קדושת השם העם והארץ בשחרור בית המקדש, הר הבית, הכותל המערבי וירושלים, עיר האלוהים. בגני דלתי מנוחתם, לכן בעל הרחמים יזכירם בסדר כנפיו לעולמים. ויצרור בצרור החיים את נשמתם, אדוני ונפלתם, וינוחו בשלום ולשכבם, ויענו לגורלם בקיץ הימין, ונאמר אמן! That uh, dramatic moment, I remember I was, uh, I was sitting in a car in Miami Beach and I heard the bulletin on the radio that the old city fell and the, the Jordanians had surrendered it and moved it. There was an old man from Shul, his name was Mr. Shamitz. All of us show him, I remember it. So he ran up to me and he embraced me so I mean, Jews felt that, you know, that they were vindicated. For an instant, you at least felt that you were vindicated. And that it was an open, uh, an open revelation of, uh, of a hand in history that sometimes we find hard to see. The uh, freeing of Jerusalem naturally forced the uh, Jordanian army and the Arabs to vacate the entire West Bank. They were outflanked. They were <coughs> harried and hounded by the Israeli Air Force. They were pounded across the Jordan River. And along with the Jordanians, about 100,000 Arabs also fled, further compounding the Arab refugee problem. And the great Arab refugee camp at Jericho, if you go there today, it's still all deserted. They all fled across the river. And Hussein, uh, also one of the memorable pictures, uh, unshaven, haggard, tired, beaten, got on television and announced, you know, the defeat. And he cursed out all the other Arabs for fooling him. And they were broken. 
And the Israelis decided that they would settle the score with Syria now also. Beginning on Friday morning, they brought their troops. And many of these troops are the same troops they fought in the Sinai. And then the best battalions they brought up to Jerusalem. And after Jerusalem, they brought them up to fight again at the Golan. So some of them fought three times, three major battles in the week. It's a little like uh, the story of the uh, famous main regiment in the... uh, Battle of Gettysburg that uh, Lee attacked uh, the first day on the right flank, and they were there. So to give them rest, they moved them to the left flank the next day, and then they were attacked there. And then to further give them rest, so the Meade moved them to the center. And the last day, the Pickett's charge was at the center of the line. So the same regiment really fought the whole Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, a little of that happened here also. The Golan was an impregnable fortress. If you go there today, you see it. It's just unbelievable. Impregnable fortress, Russian uh, system of defenses, mines, uh, bunkers, artillery, uh, machine guns. And there the Air Force was of aid, but the Air Force alone certainly could not do it because of the fact that you had to conquer it foot by foot, step by step, grenade by grenade. And the Israelis, uh, in a uh, what was a textbook exhibition of how foot soldiers can uh, dislodge an enemy, no matter how strong, from a defensive position, were able to push the Egyptian, uh, push the Syrians out of all three lines of defenses. And the Israelis captured. Uh, the peak of Mount Hermon. If you want to know what the peak of Mount Hermon means, when you're up there, you can see every plane landing at Damascus Airport. It's 20 miles from Damascus Airport. You can see with the binoculars every plane. You can read the markings on every plane. And today there's a great Israeli radar station there and everything. It's the highest point in the Middle East. The Syrians recaptured it in the 1973 war, and the Israelis in the last hours of the war before the ceasefire, again at great cost, recaptured it again. The Israelis pushed all the way to the city of Kanetra. The entire Golan, the northern Golan, the eastern Golan, the southern Golan, all were taken by the Israelis. The The Syrians were cleared out completely. The Israelis worked almost 10 years to remove the minefields just to remove the minefields, and there still are areas in the Golan where the mines have not been removed. And now, from the small little Israel that uh, that was on the verge of being annihilated, it became the giant imperial Israel. Russia, true to its plan, immediately broke diplomatic relations with Israel. The uh, United Nations voted a ceasefire, which Egypt and the Arabs accepted, because without accepting the ceasefire, their governments would have fallen. Uh, Israel could have captured Damascus and Cairo and Amman, though God knows what they would do with them. And Israel felt convinced in the wake of this great military victory, a victory that, by the way, uh, Israel sustained about 700 a little over 700 dead and about 2,000 wounded. But uh, the uh, the shine of the victory, the radiance, the glory of the victory was such that it overwhelmed the personal tragedy that was involved. Whereas in the Yom Kippur War, where Israel suffered substan- more substantial casualties, the casualties 
were more bitterly felt because the shine of the victory wasn't there. And in uh, Dayan's famous words, on the next day, on the after the after the Six Day War was over, so Dayan's famous words there, he said, "Well, I'm waiting at the telephone for Hussein to call." The Israelis were convinced somehow that the Arabs would now make peace, that the Arabs would trade peace for the territory that Israel acquired. Had the Arabs done so in 1967, they certainly could have struck the deal. Uh, politically, every party in Israel would have allowed it to happen. It would have given back, I don't know about East Jerusalem and the Kotel, but aside from that, everything could have, everything could have gone back. But nobody called. And the Arabs played it true to their... Uh, to their uh, policy, and their policy is always to fight the last war, always to make peace on the last terms. The Arabs said, now we're willing to let you have the partition board of 1948. Well, that was too late for that. Now they were talking about, now they could have had the 1967 borders. In 1973, they said we would settle for the 67 borders. It was too late. But the... Uh, the success and the victory in the Six-Day War, as we will see, was, the, was a great opportunity. Not all of the opportunities that were present then were exploited. Not in the political sense, not in the military sense, not in the social sense, not in the religious sense. But a whole new world opened up. And so it continues today. And thank you, Rabbi Wine, for uh, allowing us to present uh, the, uh, the lectures that you have... Uh, that you have recorded over the years. As we get set uh, to wrap up today's show, uh, Matis Wine guest with you. Don't forget, starting up at 9.15, just a few minutes from now, we'll be be presenting on the Nachum Siegel Network the uh, Tishabov OU Live webcast featuring Rabbi Stephen Weil. That'll come from the Boca Raton synagogue in Boca Raton, Florida. So uh, it is something uh, inspiring for the uh, for the remainder of the day, going now until 9.15 until 2.30 this afternoon. Then uh, Project Inspire will be presenting the end of Tisha B'Av webcast. That'll take place from 6.30 to 8.30 tonight. Charlie Arari and Project Inspire staff members We'll close out the fast with a program entitled Guaranteed Success in Personal Growth. I want to thank everyone again for joining me this morning uh, here on uh, Tish Above Observed Day, the 10th of uh, Av. We'll be back next week with a uh, regular format show in this area. The fast ends at 8.37 p.m. today, North New Jersey area. Uh, and we'll be back next week with a regular formatted show. Nachum will be on tomorrow morning with a regular JM in the AM show starting at 6 a.m. Take care, everyone. Have an easy fast for the rest of the day.